Uh, this morning, we're going to be going through uh, a familiar passage. Most of the scripture should be familiar to us, but this one hopefully is a little bit more familiar than most is uh, John 14. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to John 14. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses. And of course, as we begin, we dare not do it on our own. We dare not start and try to understand and discern spiritual things apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we um, let us approach the throne together and ask the Lord to help us here this morning. Let us pray together. Father, we, as we continue in worship, we ask you this morning that you would glorify yourself as we've been singing. Exalt the name of your Son through the preaching of your word. It's not about the messenger, but the message, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus. And yes, it comes, that message will come through an infallible man, or through a fallible man, excuse me, <laughs> through um, one that is uh, full of sin and, and unable to communicate. Um, but we ask that, Lord, you would be with me, send your Holy Spirit to help me to preach your word with clarity, to connect hearts and minds, and that the, your Holy Spirit would also work in the heart of every single person here, especially in the heart of your people, that they would treasure the gospel once again. Wherever the gospel has been forgotten, remind us of what Jesus has done for us. And for anyone here that doesn't know who Jesus is, or perhaps has heard of him, Lord, I pray that uh, they would come to Christ, come to the cross here this morning. May the Holy Spirit convict them of their sin and unrighteousness and look to the only one who's righteous, Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone else who, wherever your word is being preached here this morning, I pray that your word would go forth with power. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is not limited by time zones. Your gospel is not limited by latitudes and longitude and coordinates. Father, may your, for, may your word bring forth salvation in the heart of people wherever it is preached faithfully. Be here even in our local community. Be with uh, those that are preaching your gospel here this morning or in this afternoon, whenever it is. Be with them. And may we continue to rejoice as you continue to harvest souls for your glory and your kingdom. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, of course, we, this week, um, we have all these uh, political things that are happening. We just had a debate and so much stuff, uh, financial uh, times and uh, unemployment. And we, we can look at all these things. And of course, it can bring a certain level of uncertainty, a certain level of of uh, concern, you know, uh, but it is what it is. Of course, these things are not new. And but one of, one of the highlights I found pretty interesting this past week was that uh, um, this famous uh, artist, Spanish artist, that was making his rounds through the web, the social media, a uh, guy by the name of Daddy Yankee, that in his last concert ends up conf uh, confessing Christ. 
right? Well, at least proclaiming that he's going to follow God. He's no longer going to, you know, sing of the things that he used to sing about. Um, again, this is, these things are not new. You know, just a couple years ago, we had Kanye, Ye, whatever, whatever he's called now. Um, again, similar, these things tend to happen, of course, but us as Christians, we, we love it, right? We love it when celebrities come to, come to Christ and at least profess it from a, from a big stage, perhaps. Uh, and, and, it, and it comforts us, right? Because I don't know why we were somehow very um, sucked into that world, right? want to see celebrities and not a world that I particularly care to be a part of. Um, I know many people want that status, and if only I was famous. Believe me, you don't want to be there. <laughs> but here he is, you know, apparently saying that he's going to follow God. And I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I'd say the same thing that I said about Kanye, right? It, maybe he is, he isn't. Uh, only time will tell whether he is or not. I, I'm not. It's above my pay grade to say whether someone is saved <laughs> or not saved. That's not our job. We're here to just simply preach the gospel and disciple, right? That's what the scripture calls us to do. The Lord will determine whether the fruits that they're producing is something that is of him or, or not. But why do I bring this up? I bring this up because one of the things that he says in, in there is that, you know, for all these years, he's been feeling empty. He's been going through all this, uh, you know, so, I mean, who knows? I mean, tours and probably women being thrown at him and all the debauchery that goes along with that world. And he says, you know, I'm leaving it all behind and I'm, and I'm doing this. Okay? But to me, it's interesting that he says that he had a sense of emptiness. How can someone feel empty and yet have all the things that many people long to have and feel empty? It's, a, it's an interesting paradox. It almost seems like it, right? Because we think if we had all the money and all the things and all the comfort, we didn't have to wake up wondering, how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to offset this amount of inflation that, 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 that keeps on creeping up? If I woke up every morning secure, then I guess what? Things will be easier. And yet you have people that have all that and feel the complete opposite. So to me, it's very interesting because what he's feeling is not anything that you would say is only unique to him. I think all of us have or continue to have, maybe even presently, to have this sense of discomfort, this sense of emptiness, this sense of I want more, but I just don't know where to go. I don't know how to find it. Where do I begin? And so this morning, we see that in John chapter 14, we find this amazing passage. It's part of this, what we many know as the upper room discourse. Jesus is there with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. He knows he's going to go to the cross. And he's there sitting with them, and he's taking this opportunity to talk to them. And so I want us to read chapter 14 as we get into it. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And this is Jesus speaking. Some of your Bibles may be uh, red-lettered or not, but here Jesus is speaking through the first four verses. And this is what he says. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And this is a reading of God's word. Now, there's a lot that can be said here, but something that draws my attention is right at the beginning. I only have two points here this morning. And the first point is that Jesus cares for his disciples. Jesus cares for his own. What do I mean by that? Immediately he, knows, he notices something. He notices that they are a bit troubled. Their hearts are troubled. They are perplexed. Now, why are the disciples perplexed? See, for that we have to backtrack a little bit and go back to the previous chapters. Because, see, Jesus already is there. He's about to break bread. He's already broken bread with them. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13, and yes, I know that our scripture is not written in chapter and verse, right? But for our sake, chapter 13, he goes and he's sitting there with them. He's, he's breaking bread with them. As a matter of fact, he's already washed their feet. Remember that, that famous scene where he's washing their feet and Jesus says, no, no, no. And, and Peter says, no, Lord, what are you doing? And then Jesus says, no, I have to wash your feet. Otherwise, you, can't, you have nothing to share with me. Jesus knows that if you're going to be sent out to the world to wash other people's feet, you're not going to be greater than the master. If the master's not willing to do this, then neither are you. How am I going to command you to do that if, if I haven't done it for you? But remember, Peter, that if you've already been bathed, all you need to do is wash your feet. And so he's having this conversation with them. And Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 13, already says he already knows the hour had come. So that is the context of, of, of this particular scene. Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. And after he has washed your feet, he's telling them, A, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus says it flat out, clearly. I mean, there is no doubt what... Jesus says, one of you will betray me. So much so that Simon, who's sitting there, uh, Peter, Simon Peter, it, it, it leans over and says, hey, ask him, who is he talking about? And they ask him, and, and they're kind of a little bit bewildered. And he says, the one that I will dip his bread in this, this morsel and dip it with me, that's the one, the one whom I give it to. And soon enough, he goes, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot. And at that moment, Satan enters Judas, and he says, go, do what you have to do, and do it quickly. So at that moment, he leaves, and the, and the disciples are a little bit perplexed. They're like, maybe he, gave, maybe he said that to Judas because he's the one that holds the money back, and he wants them to prepare the other things for the Passover. Maybe that's why he did it. So notice their confusion, right? And now, yeah, and Peter's saying, hey, we're going to go die with you, right? Like, we're, we're, I'm never, never going to deny you. And Jesus, right, right before chapter 14, in this, in this verse, he, that's right where he tells Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times. Right? The rooster's in a crow when you've denied me three times. And now he says this part that we just read. Let not your hearts be troubled. So that's the context of where, of where we find ourselves. And I find it interesting that Jesus cares so much, not just to notice that their hearts are troubled, but look how he comforts their heart. What are the next words out of Jesus' mouth? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Where is the comfort found? In believing in God. Now, you might look at this and you say, okay, believe. This word believe. Yes, it's a Greek word. Pistis, pisteo. 
probably a different form. But how do we make sense of this? Are these two indicative words, believe and believe? Is this is what it means? You know, in other words, believe God, believe me. Are they instead two imperatives? A, keep believing on God and keep on believing in me. Is that a possibility? Yeah. Maybe it's a combination of both. A, believe in God as an indicative and keep on believing in me or vice versa. Keep on believing in God and now believe me and believe me. Regardless of how you want to make sense of it, the point is the same. The point doesn't change. And most likely, it's probably both imperative. Keep on believing in God. Remember, he's talking to Jews. They know exactly who God is. For the Jewish mind, for us, we have to kind of go back and we have to look at that. But they know who he's referring to. And so, if you think of, of Jesus... He is basically telling them, believe, because you believe God, you can believe me. If you go back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, what does the Gospel of Matthew say? What does Matthew write in chapter 3, verse 17? Right when Jesus is going to get baptized, the audible voice that says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Who said that? That was God who said, this is my beloved son. No one else could have said those words. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Very important. Matthew later on, some chapters later in chapter 17, in the transfiguration, what do the the two disciples hear? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. So if Jesus is saying this, he's saying this to his disciples. He's saying, guys, I'm it. If you believe God and you do, you can believe me. That what I am telling you, what I'm about to tell you is going to be true. In other words, it's anchored in God. This is not some empty hope, beloved. For these Jews listening, they are not wondering, man, will God do it? They have to recall and think, man, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God that told, that sent Moses, hey, let my people go. He's the one that freed Israel. He's the one that parted the sea so Israel can walk through it. This is the God that would send the the Messiah to Israel, the one that the Jews were waiting for. And this is the same one, that promised Messiah. Jesus is saying, you can believe me because the one who sent me is my Father and you believe him, you can take his words to the bank. These are not empty promises. And so there, you see Jesus is comforting them by anchoring them in God. Your, our, our anchors must always be in Him, not in anything else. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see Jesus as our forerunner. We see Jesus as our forerunner. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Immediately we go into verses 3 and 4 and we start thinking of the mansion. We start thinking of the rooms. What's my room going to look like? Uh, if you've ever gone looking for a home and all of a sudden you, you go to a home and you're gone with your kids, you mean to, hey, you, you mean to, hey, this is my room, I call this room. Every, and then all of a sudden, they, in a matter of seconds, they've already started painting that room. They're already, I want to paint it this color. I want to do this and that, blah, blah, blah. And we do in many ways the same thing, right? You go see a house, you look for it. And I was saying, man, I can change the landscape. I will do this. I will make the driveway a little bit bigger, add another room, change the garage. You know, because we start getting all these visions. And, and similarly, something like this happens, right? But we miss something. We miss something. Because Jesus is telling him, A, there's no empty promise here. My God, my Father, your God is not going to fail you. Keep on believing in Him. Keep on believing in me. The beauty of this is that, beloved, there is, there are no orphans in God's kingdom. There are no orphans in God's kingdom. If you are in Christ today, when you are called on that side of eternity, you won't be an orphan. You will have a father. You will be with your Savior. But the challenge is that choose to be an orphan on this side, and you will be an orphan in the afterlife. That's the gravity of what we're dealing with. And so Jesus is telling them, this he's comforting them in this hebrews 6 verses 19 and 20 the writer of hebrews says this we have this referring to the hope we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek Jesus went before us to secure the place for us so that when we get there, we'll have a place for us. And I know you guys understand this illustration. It's very common. As a matter of fact, you guys do it. If you ever had people invited to your home, after church, for instance, you'll see sometimes the wives immediately leave, dart out, why? Go get the food ready, right? The, the, come, the visitors are coming. Let me get everything ready so when they come, at least the food is all warmed up. Because that's common. What did Jesus do? Even before getting to the upper room, he sent the disciples, go, tell them I'm coming. Tell them to get it ready. It's a common practice. Jesus is doing exactly that. He's going before us to secure the place for us. Now our problem is no different than that of the disciples. See, they're confused, they're perplexed. Jesus, where are you going? They have to trust Jesus as much as we have to trust Jesus. They have to trust that Jesus is the Messiah, that he would pay for our sins, and that he would come back. Guess what you and I have to do? Also trust that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. That he went to the cross. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come back for us again. It's no different. 
we might have a little bit more insight than the disciples at that time. But at the end of the day, our faith is no different. We must continue anchoring ourselves in the words of Christ. Believe, keep on believing in Him. Beloved, I love that hymn. That, beloved, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Just a couple weeks ago, talking with a brother, I, I might have mentioned there, excuse me if I'm repeating myself, but guys, our faith is not a faith that started in the 1970s or 1960s with the Jesus movement. Our faith dates back millennia. That is where our faith begins. And so that, that famous uh, uh, hymn, O Church, uh, as saints of old lined the way, retelling triumphs of His grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Beloved, that is our hope. That is your hope as you're sitting there listening to me, is that one day you will stand in glory with Him because Jesus already went ahead of you. Your great high priest already secured it for you and for me if you are in Christ. Now, this leads us to the second point, the exclusivity of Jesus. And verse 4 ends with this statement. Verse 4 ends with this statement that the disciples know the way to where he is going. Jesus tells them, and you know the way. And Thomas is a bit frustrated. If you know anything about Thomas, what do you know about Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Immediately everybody said, Doubting Thomas. If you ever want to Give anyone who tends to be the doubtful one, you give them that moniker. It's just a doubting Thomas, right? But there's something interesting with Thomas. Thomas is asking this question. And yes, we know Thomas because Thomas isn't mentioned often in, in, in Scripture. There's a couple of places, and I'll point them out to you. But the reason he's called doubting Thomas is because after the resurrection, Jesus appears to some of the disciples. And then a week later, Thomas appears. He wasn't there at the first appearance. Thomas wasn't there. He's just got to hear it by hearsay. And they're telling him, hey, we saw Jesus. And Thomas is saying, bro, I don't believe you. <laughs> come, come back with another story, but I ain't believing you. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey, touch, your, touch my wounds. Put your hand, put your finger here. That was Thomas. Thomas gets that rap, but I don't think it's an honest rap. I don't think it's an honest reputation that he's getting. Because Thomas, I think, was sincere. Thomas was loyal. You know how loyal he was? Any clue? Just a couple of chapters prior to that, Lazarus had died. You guys know the story of Lazarus. And Lazarus had died, and Jesus is going to go there. And the disciples are aware that Jesus had just, they were trying to stone him and he had escaped. And so Thomas, who's there, who's called the twin, as scripture says, they're like, oh, Jesus, you're going to go over there? And you know what Thomas does? Thomas tells him, he leans over to the guy and says, let's ride. Let's go. If he's going to die, we're going to die with him. That was Thomas. 
So you give him, you want, people want to give him this like Doubting Thomas reputation. But he was the one that was saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm next to you. If you die, I'm going to die with you. And all of us are going to go. Love it. And what I even love more is that Thomas is sincere enough to ask the question. Thomas is not backing down and he's saying, hmm, I'll figure it out later. He asks, Jesus, what are you talking about? Many of us probably would have, like, out of fear of, of people looking at us and, and thinking, man, what are they going to think of us if I ask this question? Like, how are you not getting it? We'll stay quiet. Thomas asks the question, what are you talking about? What do you mean we know the way? I love that. His mind, Jesus' mindset was on, on the things above, but like the disciples were very much like that. And Jesus understands that. He picks up what Thomas is laying down. And Jesus, and for us it's a translation, 19 words, depending on the translation you have. might be more, but the point is, that it doesn't take very much for Jesus to summarize all of our faith in one phrase. Think about this phrase that he's about to give. And, and it's a dogmatic statement. There is no, maybe Jesus really didn't mean this. Could he have meant something else? Nah. Jesus was emphatic. And he was dogmatic. He was basically saying, this is it. Either you get it or you don't. And what was it that he was trying to get his disciples to understand? And us. Me and you. Kids, don't, don't zone out. Not just kids, everyone. I mean, pay attention to what Jesus is going to say because these words are the ones that are going to have to be preached to generations to come. Because this is where all of our faith clings to. It clings to. And so what's the, the first part here is that Jesus cannot be circumvented. You know what circumvent means? To go around. The first circumnavigation around the world, the circumnavigation is to go around the world. In other words, Jesus cannot be circumvented. You cannot go around Jesus. He, you have to go through Him. Because there is no other way. That is exactly what Jesus is telling them. And if we don't get this, then we're not going to get the following part, which is that he's the truth and that he's the life. So the other two points are related to this one. They stem from this one. And what's the purpose of a road? People just build roads for the sake of building roads? No one likes to go down a road. And find a dead end. <laughs> it's the most frustrating thing. Miami, going and you're like, oh man, it's a cul-de-sac. There you go, coming back out. No one wants to go into a dead end. Because the point of a road is to get you from one point to another. Jesus is saying, I am that road that connects the present to the afterlife. Without me, you don't get to that celestial city. You don't get heaven. That's the Father's house. So if you want to know what those rooms are, what that Father's house is, that's heaven. And Jesus is there enjoying him. That's heaven. Because if Jesus is not there, then there is no heaven, is there? So Jesus is saying, I am the means and I am the end. 
I am the road that connects you from here into eternity. We all have to be confronted with death. You ever had a little child? Ever experience? Kids, remember when you experienced your first death, maybe that of a pet, a fish, an animal? I don't know. Or maybe it could have been a loved one. You have to contend with, what does this mean? That this person is no longer here or this animal is no longer here. Even the staunch atheist has to still contend with that reality. The atheist has to answer. They might answer it differently. They might comfort themselves differently. But at the end of the day, they still have to contend with that. What happens? This person is no longer here. Maybe they just vanished and that's it. They're, they're here. They were here one moment and gone the next, perhaps. But Jesus is saying there's more. That is not the end-all, be-all. Jesus is aware that death leaves a sting. That is why we read in Corinthians, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because that is what, precisely what death does. It leaves a sting. It leaves a hole. It, it hurts. Just go to a funeral home when people are there and you just hear the weeping and the wailing. And you just see that person, you're like, that person is no longer going to be there. I'm going to go home. And I'm not going to get that phone call from that person ever again. It hurts. But Jesus is telling us, I am that way. Afterlife, the afterlife does not, it has nothing on me. In other words, death has nothing on me. Because I, I am the road. You're not going to find it on Google Maps. The answer to the afterlife is not going to be found on ways because the road and the way is a person that goes by the name of Jesus. So don't bother looking anywhere else. But how can Jesus be the way? How can He be the way? I'll tell you very simply. If you get nothing else, how can Jesus be the way? Because this is a pretty bold statement for Jesus to make. What he's saying is, if you want to make it to that celestial city, you have to be righteous. You have to be perfect. But I'm not. And Jesus would say, and you are right in what you have said. You're not. You're not righteous. You are unrighteous. That is why the righteous one had to pay. The righteous for the unrighteous so that whosoever puts their faith in him will not perish but have everlasting life that whosoever believes in what Jesus did on the cross that you repent of your sins and you come to him and you believe that he paid for your sins the spotless and the spotless lamb the blameless one paid for your sins you will have life and that when you believe that, not only will you stand justified before God the Father, you will also be adopted into His kingdom. That's the joy of the gospel. That is why I can say that you will not be orphans if you choose to follow Christ today. If you, don't, if you understand what He is saying, 
That is what Jesus means. I am the only way. But isn't that a little bit insensitive? How can Jesus say he's the only way? Beloved, every religion is exclusive. Every religion is exclusive. Because all of them believe that their truth is the, is, is the only one. So for some to say that only Christianity is, is, is exclusive and all the other religions are inclusive, wrong. Now, what Christianity says is that anyone can come to Jesus. Anyone. Young or old, tall, short, whatever the color of your skin, whatever the color of your eyes, it doesn't matter. Oh, but I have a past. I have a track record. Yeah, but you can still come to him. That's the gospel. That is what Jesus says. Oh, but, I, but I, I'm an adulterer. You can still come. You can, I can show you stories of a harlot that understood who Jesus was and poured that expensive perfume over his feet. So at the end of the day, anyone can come, but you have to come on his terms. That's the gospel. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Or are you still believing in some Eastern mysticism? Or are you still believing in some new age things, you know, that somehow if I add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, I'll get it all together. No. Jesus is the only way, period. Full stop. So you have to believe on his terms. And secondly, truth cannot be reinvented. Truth cannot be reinvented. So Jesus can't be circ- cannot be circumvented and truth cannot be reinvented. What do I mean by that? C.S. Lewis is very helpful here, as usual. C.S. Lewis says something very interesting, and he said this, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. I'll repeat it. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Very simple illustration. If truth really is relative, if truth really is relative, can you imagine that engineer that built that plane and believes what's a, what's a fraction between friends? I mean, wait, 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 who's here? He's a mechanic. What's an extra torque, you know? Do I really need to put the exactly those exact amount of pounds of pressure? You find out when all of a sudden that tire of that landing gear comes off and then you're in for a crash landing. Do you get onto a plane? If you believe that the engineer that built that plane thought truth was relative, I guarantee you, you won't. I 100% guarantee you, you won't. You won't even cross a bridge with your car if you thought that engineer thought truth was relative. So why do we apply it to this? See? See the predicament? The inconsistency? And so what Jesus is saying is, truth is meant to be discovered, and I am that truth. You've already, I, I, I've, not only have you, not only do you have to look for it, I've, I've disclosed it to you. You're looking at him. 
Look no further. I am He. I am the truth. Truth is so important that Proverbs, Solomon writes in Proverbs 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. By wisdom, instruction, and understanding. That's how important truth is. You start messing with truth, you're in trouble. And I know none of you like to be lied to. None of you like to be lied to. Because truth matters. John the Baptist, what was he? He was the forerunner. Forerunner to who? To the truth, to Jesus. Hey, it's him. He's the Messiah. He's the one, not me. I, I can't even untie his sandals. He's the one you want to look to. Ephesians 6, put on the what? Truth. The belt of truth. Because truth matters. And Jesus is the only truth. Just like there's only one way, so there's only one truth. And Scripture says that there was no deceit found in Jesus. There was no deceit found in Jesus. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Or John at the beginning of his gospel, how does, we, how does he open his gospel? With this, and the word, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There was no deceit in Jesus. None. Zero. Nil. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? You have to answer that question. Because if he's not, that will have consequences. And if he is, that too will have consequences. And the consequences can't be any more different. They're on opposite ends. Polar opposites. And finally, the gift of life must not be rejected. Jesus can't be circumvented. Truth cannot be reinvented. And finally, the gift of life must not be rejected. The life. Up to, up to now, Jesus has been saying who he is, right? That I am the truth. I am the life. Excuse me, I, I am the way and the truth. And now, John's gospel because the whole purpose of John's gospel is to show that Jesus is God. It's Him. He's not a figment of our imagination. We're not trying to force a, a, a square peg in a round hole. It's Him. He fits all the description of the Old Testament of the promised one. It's Him. You may not see it, but John is telling you it's Him. John 1.3 all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, referring to Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Remember that scene I just mentioned a little bit uh, some moments ago, Lazarus, in John chapter 11. There's an interesting dialogue that happens between Jesus and Martha. There Jesus promises something to Martha. 
He says, your brother Lazarus will rise again. Jesus promises that to her. He's going to rise again. And I find it very interesting because Martha doesn't even blink. She doesn't like, like, you know, really Jesus? Are you sure about that? She doesn't question. She says, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that he will. And because scripture is all about him, Jesus says this in, in John chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. He tells Martha this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, lo- who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks this question to Martha. Do you believe this? Martha's reply is, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You know, the question is no different for you. Do you believe this? Kids, do you believe this? Is Jesus, do you believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is? And don't think this message is just for the kids. If you're not in Christ, this message is for you. If you are in Christ, this message is for you. If you answer anything other than, yes, Lord, I believe. You don't have the hope that Jesus promised you would have for anyone who believes in him. That is the message of the gospel. Your response should be nothing else than, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is in our hearts. Because you and I will go to whatever length we have to, to suppress truth. You and I want to suppress truth. We are inclined to shut it out because we don't want to live according to God's ways. We want to be the captain of our own souls. And as long as I can be the captain, no one can tell me what I have to do. Okay. Then don't expect a different answer when you stand before him. Don't expect that all of a sudden whatever money you gave or whatever nice little things you've done are, are going to be sufficient for, for God to say, come in, my child. They won't be. Either you believe who he said he, he is or you don't. Is he the doorway to you? Is he the truth? Is he the life? Because Jesus said it right there. No one. And no one means no one. There is no asterisk next to that phrase. There is no footnote to to the end of that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Period. So, beloved, at the end of the day, we can debate doctrine, 
We can debate baptism. We can debate eschatology. We can debate a plethora of things. But one thing we cannot debate, and we must never debate, is Jesus really the way, the truth, and the life? That right there, beloved, is not up for grabs. And I will take Jesus, Jesus' words, that he's coming back all the way to the bank. Because he is who he said he is. I and the Father are one. Everything that the Father gave me to speak, I spoke. And everything that the Father gave me to do, I did. So you can come and you can bank that my promises are true. So come. Are you heavy? Are you weary today? Are you wondering where am I going to find some relief for this emptiness that I have, this despair that I'm dealing with, these questions of life? I'm telling you, the answer is, no, is found in no one else but Jesus. So you can come to him. Be like Thomas, right, in that sense. Have the boldness that Thomas had to ask. Don't walk away. Don't leave through those doors. Scratching your head and saying, I think I understood what he said, but I'm not really sure. No. Ask. Go. And come to Christ. Same thing he told the woman at the well. is the same thing. I, I am the living water. And whoever comes to me will never thirst again. May you find your soul satiated in no one else than Christ himself. Amen? Father, I ask that your word would be profitable. That hearts would be convicted. Father, as we, in a couple of weeks, you know that many will be commemorating the birth of Christ. And even as we were looking in Sunday school, the persecution of Jesus didn't begin when he began his ministry, began at his birth. We know he is who he said he is. And we know the problem is not with you, it's with us. So I ask you today that you would remove any scales, remove any blindfolds from anyone here that is not able to see Jesus for who he is. I pray that those would come to him by faith. That you would be pleased to justify them and to call them your own. And I pray that you would also encourage your people as they have been listening, Father, to not just be hearers, but to be doers. That every day we must cast ourselves at your feet. May a day not go by where we don't do that. Thank you for your word. And may your spirit be pleased to bring forth the fruit that only you can produce in us. Fruit that may be pleasing, a sweet fragrance unto you. Thank you, Jesus. We commit the preaching of your word and every soul here in this room unto you. We ask this in your 
beloved and blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen.